this wouldn't be the first time someone has cried during testimony in a medical malpractice case. How about the the attorney and the expert? You know what? Everybody, the judge is crying. Everybody is crying. The bailiff. Peter is a part of all of the process. Hello, welcome. It's Ricky Pat. It's that time again. Uh, risk management monthly coming to you with Rachel on the line and Greg. Uh, guys, welcome. Hello. Anything going on in your lives? Yeah, just the usual snowstorms here in Michigan at this time of year. Other than that, okay, Rick. Well, you know, we're, we are streaming this. And so, Greg, you can't see Greg's face because he basically, we don't have his <laughs> microphone lined up with his computer, but, but, Audiologically, he's perfect, you know. So, what are you going to do? So, Greg, every once in a while, just look at like look at that camera, just to let us know you're there. Yeah, um, Rachel, uh, we uh, you just got home from uh, from a meeting. You know, are you uh, basically kind of starting to run that department, or, or at least? No, no, we're doing a, a boot camp for the graduating fourth year students. So we're we have them in the simulation center, and we're running them through all these like mock codes, you, you know, so. that boot camp term has been, is copyrighted and trademarked oh, yeah? and, you know, I think ours yeah. is the original. So you can pay, pay <laughs> you us know, the royalties we, we've anytime. Been doing boot camp for like nine years, but anyway, guys, it's time to begin. we got a bunch <laughs> of interesting stuff that we're going to review and listen, uh, Ricky tells me we're live streaming. So listen, if you want to send in a comment, question, disagreement, do that, and I will actually look at my uh, monitor here, and maybe we can answer these questions if you send them in. But if uh, there's only two people listening, you know, I don't expect much. <laughs> in any case, let's get started with the smell of alcohol on somebody's breath at work. Rachel, that's uh, oh, that's me. That's All right, you. yeah, I'm sorry. I'm on to, it. I missed sorry my to cue. Inter- interrupt, you know. <laughs> All right, so this was a story. Uh, of an OB-GYN physician who basically went to work and a nurse practitioner there thought that she smelled alcohol in this physician's breath. So later the nurse practitioner sent an email to one of her supervisors saying, you know, I, I think this physician smelled like alcohol. And eventually this email worked its way up to the CMO of the hospital and they got together and talked to a group of other physicians. Um, and you know, without the, the physician whom this was about being present, um, And these other physicians said, well, you know, this was actually brought up a few years ago, kind of the same issue about alcohol. And so they went back to this doctor and said that we're going to suspend you with just partial pay until we figure out what's going on. The doctor denied this, said I didn't have any alcohol and, and basically sued saying, you know, now I've lost my income. I've had to, you know, fork over all these out-of-pocket expenses, caused me a bunch of emotional distress and really damaged my reputation based on these false allegations, went to court on this. And ended up being awarded almost $6 million. And really the reason for this, based on the court's ruling, was that the hospital had a policy based on how they they were supposed to handle allegations like this, and it wasn't followed. The doctor wasn't advised at the time of the incident that there were any suspicions about their behavior, that the employer didn't assess the doctor at the time of the incident, didn't do a breathalyzer or blood alcohol or anything like that. didn't send the doctor home at the time. They didn't relieve them of their duty like they were supposed to. It was really after the fact that they got suspended. Uh, that, uh, let's see, the doctor was not requested. The doctor didn't have the ability to be um, 
have the request to be tested for alcohol and independent laboratory. That was part of the policy. It was written that they had the ability to request that. Um, and that, you know, kind of based on this, based on the fact that there was this policy in place that wasn't followed at all, you know, the doctor, none of these things should have happened. And, and so the, the court really favored, you know, the doctor's argument here and gave her almost $6 million. Yeah. Uh, I think we're all often in the situations, particularly when we're on call uh, and somebody's it's the evening and, and you're calling in a doctor and it's Saturday night and they're on call, but they might've had a, a drink or two at some kind of dinner or cocktail party. And they come in and I mean, I've had this happen over my, my career, Greg, did you ever have any people you thought were uh, mildly intoxicated? Yes. And uh, let's, let's get right to it. Uh, it doesn't make you any friends to have to pull a doc into the next room and talk about this, but you know what? You don't have any other choice. And if there isn't a hospital policy about it, there needs to be, because it is going to happen, Rick. Oh, yeah. Rachel, you ever have anybody do this in your young career? <laughs> I haven't yet, but it's a baby career. So I, I think that I can obviously see you know, what an easy situation this would be to, to be in. It would be interesting to know what the policy is at your hospital, but this is one of the times where you must follow it to the letter. And these guys screwed it up from the get-go. And um, you would think some supervisor who was made aware of this that evening, I mean, would have handled this, but the, but the NP didn't even do that. And um, so you can see that this doctor's reputation was harmed and uh, they weren't able to show that she was intoxicated at all. And so it, it's like, I think that, you know, she wanted a good case, but everybody just dropped the ball here. I can see, you know, going to an outside lab, but, but you're going to do that at 10 o'clock at night. I'm going to send you to an outside lab to see you've got alcohol in your bloodstream or some other drugs. I mean, that's not a very practical thing to do. Um, so I'm not sure how that would be applied, but I, the letter, uh, the lesson here, I think is you better know what your hospital's policy is because uh, this is um, something that is important. Uh, if you let the doctor stay on for crying out loud and there's some harm done, can you imagine uh, the liability associated with, with that? In any case, that was the case of the doctor with alcohol on her breath who basically doesn't have to work for a few years to recover <laughs> from the anxiety associated with this an emotional distress and loss of consortium. Yes. Um, there's another art article in uh, Medscape on uh, more on the recording of doctors. And this is interesting because it basically said that the AMA recently tabled a proposed resolution that any recording of a doctor would require the agreement of both parties. It's like, what's it, what is the AMA thinking about? They, they're not the determinants of what a person can do or not do. It's the state law that is determined here. So the, the AMA basically kind of was going to overstep its bounds anyway. They have no authority here. Remember from past discussions that um, 39 states require only one consent 
and that's the consent of the re- person doing the recording. recording. That's, all they, that's all they need, you know. Absolutely. They have, they have to ask themselves, are you consenting to record that that doctor? And if they say yes <laughs> to themselves, um, has this ever happened to you, Greg? No. Anybody ever, ever, well, not that you know of. Well, that, it's never happened that I know of, and I've never seen a legal action filed or taken against an emergency doc based on uh, a recording made in any of the emergency departments that I've worked at. Now, whether it has actually been contemplated or not, I don't know, but uh, I think it's still got to be a fairly rare event, Rick. Uh, it, it, it can't be, it can't be a daily kind of, uh, event at the emergency department. Well, a Dartmouth study said that one in 10 patients record their visits. And now that, you know, when you were working in the ER, the, you know, a tape recorder was about a one foot square box. Right. Exactly. Now, Now the tape recorder is in your pocket as your phone and you just turn a little, turn that sucker on and it's in, in your upper pocket and you've got everything down. Uh, except uh, the video. I want to read the 11 states where you have to have two parties consents. And this is where the doctor does have the opportunity to say, um, I don't uh, agree with what you're doing and uh, you don't have my permission. And if you continue to do this, it's against the law of the state of California. And uh, we're going to get you for that. And those 11 states are California, Delaware, Florida, Illinois, Maryland, Massachusetts, Montana, Nevada, New Hampshire, Pennsylvania, and Washington. And if you're in one of those states, you're in in kind of a states that are kind of uh, smart because you know the idea of one state, thirty nine states. How 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 would you uh, how would you get a law like that passed that you don't need anybody's permission to take their picture? Yeah, I, I I don't know of, uh, obviously, my state of Michigan is not included in that group, but I've never seen over my 40-some years of doing emergency medicine, I've never seen the case in Michigan where a, a uh, recording uh, was used against an emergency physician. I've never seen it. Now, it may be out there somewhere, but you know what? This has got to be pretty rare, Rick. Well, this is not a malpractice action. This is a, you know, uh, a some kind of civil or no criminal action. But in any case, what do you think, Rachel? Do you uh, think that uh, you care much about being recorded or not? What if somebody comes in and say, I'd like to watch you record you suturing up my little Johnny here? I mean, it makes me a little uncomfortable, but it's probably not a hill I'm going to die on. Oh, okay. Okay. (laughs) And, you know, as far as the, you know, it feeling a little bit wild that states would let you, you know, record somebody without their permission. I guess the other argument for that is, you know, you have, as a patient, you have, you're paying somebody to provide a service for you. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, the physician has accepted, you know, the other end of that contract, that money to provide that service. And so 
if that comes with the acceptance of, you know, the agreement that they can then record you like, okay. In those States, it comes with that too. It is what it is. Yeah, I, I, I guess that's true. But I think that uh, once you have determined that there is not a medical emergency as defined by the Healthcare Financing Administration, your EMTALA duty is over so that you could say, um, Mrs. So-and-so, uh, my obligation to treat you now is, is over. And um, unless you discontinue this recording, I'm going to ask that you see another physician because uh, and I think you would have every right to do that. I don't think you would do that, but I think that would be within your rights to do that. Yeah, uh, it would be. And then, you know, but we don't do that regularly. And we also, no. you know, and then we continue to bill them for all the stuff we do after their, our EMTALA <laughs> obligations over, you know, the, we, uh, we regularly extend our contract with them past the EMTALA obligation for our benefit, not, yes. not thinking about it as if it's for our benefit, but we do. You know, they say this stuff could be shared on social media. The potential for editing the recording is there. Disagreements over uh, some pandemic-related issues. You refused to give ivermectin to my husband, and now look what happened. And I recorded that you didn't do that. Um, In any case, it doesn't seem like it's a really big issue, but I I do know that I remember people who came in and recorded stuff, and uh, I think you need to know what your rights are in that regard. I don't think you want to be a jerk about it, but I also think if you feel particularly uncomfortable about it, then I think you need to basically let the person know that I'm happy to take care of you. And I'm going to, you know, I'm going to commit to doing as good a job as I can, but I must tell you that this recording is making me feel very uncomfortable. I do Uh, think there's room for institutions to step into and I don't, Oh yeah. I would have to think um, about, how that would play out, you know, a potential conflict with these state laws. But, you know, I think institutions can say we don't allow recording in these settings. Um, yeah, I think that I think that that's true. The person could say, well, actually, the law does allow me to do that if they knew the law. But I've always basically <laughs> said that the hospital should have a really nice sign big on the wall that says for the protection for the privacy of our patients. Uh, no recording is allowed in the emergency department because you always have the opportunity to hear, you know, other things that are going on that are frankly not your business. And in ERs that are old, that still have curtains between people, um, like an ER that I'm familiar with for the last 25 years had <laughs> curtains between many of the patients. I mean, those curtains are not odor proof and they're not soundproof. And it's like, the idea that occurred in any way provides privacy is kind of a joke. So um, I think that that's another issue, the privacy of the other people in the department. But shall we move on? Any comments, questions, disagreements out there? I haven't gotten one person sending in a comment on our live stream here. Hey, what can I I say? That's because we must be so lucid that there's no reason that they could possibly have for answering a question, asking a question. All right, let's do. Um, we'll revisit medical boards here. Yes, this is. We we need to get this clearly in your head, um, and so this is one more attempt to go through the list of things that you ought to be aware of, or you're not should do when you get involved. Well, this is a hot topic in emergency medicine, medical legal stuff, because it's so, so common. You know, this is medical board actions are more common than medical malpractice actions. 
So again, some advice from lawyers about how to handle medical board actions. So the threshold for patients to make complaints to state medical boards can be really low because you don't have to have a lawyer to do it. Anybody can make those complaints. It can be patients, it can be family members, it can be you know other medical providers who just don't like you. And medical boards usually investigate all of those complaints. Uh, there's in this article from Medscape by Lee Page in February, uh, there's a 10 things not to do in a medical board hearing. So we'll kind of review, I'll review the first five of those here. And then Rick, I'll give you the last five. So first of all, just not responding to the complaint is a big mistake. You get an investigation. You might think that this is not worth your time, but you, you pretty much have an obligation to respond. So respond to the complaint. Um, kind of a, a, with that, not recognizing that it's serious. Um, so when you do respond, you need to provide as much information as you can to support your response, whether you, you need to go back into the chart, pull out whatever information you can. You might need to kind of talk to other people that were there, the nurses, other people in the department who can remember that interaction and provide all that back to the, to the board. Um, you know, I think that the idea that the, this idea that the board is not your friend really needs to be uh, in, on the forefront of your brain because you're be, you'll you'll be interacting with other physicians, and you think that this is a peer to peer. You know, we're we're friendly peer to peer, but this is not friendly. These people are, are out to determine whether you whether you uh, went beyond the the practices or privacy or you you uh, did something improper or you touched somebody improper all of that stuff is big time stuff right so that was the next point you know don't come in with the assumption that the person investigating it just because they're your peer is on your side you know really the opposite assumption is true so so really come in with the assumption that they they think that you did something wrong um but and don't do don't approach it with anything but complete honesty. So be honest, be forthcoming. Um, if you do anything but that, you can really put your license in jeopardy really quickly. Even if the complaint is pretty minor, don't withhold anything, you know, especially if that information is requested, you can't, you can get in big trouble if you, you know, they ask if there are any previous complaints or something and you think, Oh, I, I hope, you know, it's in some other state. I don't think they're going to find it. You've got to give it to them. Um, and, you know, don't, don't, you know, try to pretend that you did everything right. You know, if you feel like, oh, yeah, I could have done this better, should have done this better. You know, you can own up to that. doesn't mean that you're going to get your license revoked or something, but just be honest about what happened. Um, but at the same time, you know, you don't have to provide too much information. You don't have to, you know, go off about how this patient was super annoying and, you know, you don't want to go back into the room because they're driving you crazy. Some of that information is not going to help you. So, you know, be honest, but don't provide information that's irrelevant and, and can just make you seem like you're whining or something like that. Um, you know, unnecessary issues are, don't always help you. You know, this issue about if they catch you in a lie, it may be a relatively minor thing, but if they catch you in a lie, that lie in itself basically is a reflection of uh, unprofessional conduct. And Martha Stewart went to jail, not because she had some inside 
information that related to trading. She went to jail because she lied to the feds. That was her crime. And, uh, and you've seen other people who've lied to the feds, like all of the guys who worked for Trump, all of them who went to jail, it was because they lied to the feds. Um, so lying in it of itself becomes a, uh, a problem, even if the, if the situation is medically not any big deal. Um, never contact the person who has made a complaint against you. That is, that is a no-no. Well, the same thing applies in, in, in real court. You would never basically uh, talk to somebody who's made a complaint and you're in, in court on the other side of the, of the, of the, of the case. Greg, any, any um, thoughts about anything that's covered so far? Well, I, <clears throat> I think the first point that has to be made is this is a process and you have to go with the process. You have to kind of do those things that are necessary. All doctors feel two or three things. Offended that someone would think they didn't do it right. Uh, how could they do this to me? Yada, yada. Bottom line is the best thing you can do is play the game correctly. Show up, be represented don't think that you don't need to have an attorney because you do. And there are attorneys who do just this kind of work. It's important that we take it seriously. Yeah, that this is listed as number eight. I would think that, that getting an attorney is like number one. <laughs> yeah, to, yes, exactly. You, uh, cra create the response to the, uh, the complaint against you. Uh, I know an ER physician who became an, an attorney, and he did work just like this. And so he, he knew the medicine, and he knew the law. And you combine them together, you could make a a you know powerful response to the uh, allegations against you. And you don't want to have anything but the best response that you can generate. Because I would think that you can nip this in the bud relatively easily at the beginning, but once they're, you know, they have these ex-policemen and detectives who are doing this investigation on you, this is, this is, and they don't necessarily have to follow the rules of evidence or law in terms of, of, of going after you. Um, simply signing a consent agreement without understanding what you're, when you sign a consent agreement with the uh, medical board, it says, that's in essence saying you agree with what the board's decision is and its remedy and precludes you from making a counter offer. By the time you sign or signing something, uh, you're done. Um, so this is clearly something that would need an attorney to uh, help you uh, on, you know, somebody who knows the medicine. Um, the other one here is not requesting hearing. You're entitled to a hearing. Some states have high standards for taking action, so they're looking for clear and convincing evidence. Other states, not less so. And a hearing will make the, the world publicly, um, you can state your case, and your attorney is able to respond at a hearing. I think that's kind of like standard fare that hearings are conducted in any cases where you disagree with what the board is saying. Um, I think a get, couple a couple points on that. So the not hiring an attorney, I thought 
you know, this was news to me when I learned it, that there are, you know, attorneys that specialize in just this, just representing physicians in front of the licensing board. So, you know, I think that as a physician, when you get a board complaint, that can be really overwhelming. You don't know where to start. Well, where to start is going to the the attorneys that specialize in representing physicians in front of the licensing board. So you could literally ignore everything in this list that I just reviewed, that Rick just reviewed. And all you go is go hire an attorney that represents physicians in front of the licensing board, because that's her job. So uh, that's exactly right. We don't need to read this list. Yeah, honestly, it's such a common thing. Uh, That's, that's really like the take home point. Um, So if you get nothing out of this, get that out of it. They're attorneys that that's all they do. Well, Mark Calvert, one of the attorneys that we uh, talk to periodically, he represents physicians uh, in front of the medical board uh, routinely because, as you mentioned, we had this uh, from I think it was last year. It was something like in Indiana or in uh, Illinois, the the rates of board actions were like eight times greater than the number of malpractice suits. So you're you know you're right that that's much more risky than getting potentially sued. And if you get sued, you have insurance for that. If you get in trouble with the medical board, you don't have any insurance for that. You're, and you might get in some way limited in terms of your practice. And once your practice is limited, that has to be reported to the, you know, the, the, um, the database and it gets to be a mess. And lastly, don't get upset at the board officials because if you piss them off any more than they already are, that it's not going to be in your favor to get arrogant or show your anger. This kind of gets Spock-like when you're dealing with these people. Be polite, answer the questions. Um, I'm not quite sure where you would necessarily find lawyers who do this, uh, Rachel. Is there some kind of directories of lawyers, or how do you, how do you go about this? I think just Google. Honestly, um, I went through this with a colleague recently and, and we just Googled and the alternative would be uh, your institution may have access to this. Dr. Google helped you out here. Yeah, but um, yeah, that, that actually was pretty easy on Google. I guess there's an issue, though, is uh, how com- comfortable you feel with them with regard to your competence. But I guess you can get a sense of that after you have some kind of conversation with them. And they mm-hmm. basically tell you, you know, I do this all the time, did it, did it, did it, that kind of thing. Uh, how about abdominal pain in a post-op patient, Rachel? Here's a case. All right. We'll jump to a case. So this case, uh, in this case, a patient was in a rehab facility after having a knee replacement. And they began, began to complain of right lower quadrant abdominal pain. So it looked like an, an emergency physician saw the patient, got an abdominal CT scan that was read as negative for appendicitis, but the radiologist said they couldn't rule out a colonic obstruction. So not quite what they were looking for, but the emergency physician said, you know, they have a, they had a colonoscopy scheduled for the next day, thought that would be appropriate, kind of help them figure out what's going on. So the patient returned to the rehab center, didn't get any records or reports. Again, the emergency physician said that colonoscopy should be just fine. Um, patient went back, told the rehab doctor, CT was negative, I'm good to go. Uh, patient was given some laxatives by the rehab doctor, you know, in, in prep for the colonoscopy, abdominal pain worsened. 
Um, patient went back to the ED because of their worsening pain. And at this point was found to have a colonic perforation and the patient died. So, uh, I think Rick, you've pointed out some lessons learned here. <laughs> There's probably a few lessons learned. Um, maybe one obvious lesson learned transitions of care are notorious setups for errors, things gone wrong. Um, and in, in that same vein, have a protocol regarding transfers of records and kind of expectations when sending patients back and forth between care facilities and, you know, be sure, you know, who's following up with needed care. Because none of those things happened with this patient and had a really poor outcome. It's hard to conceive uh, that records would not be sent back to a patient who's going back to a rehab facility that there, there were no, no paperwork being sent uh, back or even a phone call to the doctor would be uh, be great. But, you know, usually at rehab facilities, there's not a lot of doctors floating around. The patients are just kind of getting a little PT to get their knee moving again. And uh, that's, that's about it. So there's not necessarily anybody to, to call. But you can call call the patient's prime, uh, primary doctor. You got to, uh, you can, but it, it, it would just be weird. When we had patients, uh, we used to send co copies of their lab tests and their x-ray reports, whether it was fine, a preliminary reading or a final reading, preliminary reading by us, final reading by the radiologist. Now, now, everything's on a computer that most people are linked up to and you can just get all of that stuff, but somehow somebody needs to know to read it. And so maybe in some ways paper was better than having all of this stuff on a computer, unless you knew that somebody's going to look at it. And, and especially if you need follow-up in a short period of time, like the next day, you would think that you would definitely know who's going to do that follow-up uh, for that patient. Yeah. So, my uh, my brother's wife's mother i guess she would be called my sister-in-law yes she blew out her colon and died and her problem was chronic constipation because of opiates for this all her compressions of her vertebrae she was in this severe pain all the time She's on opiates, and basically the opiates were responsible for her death. Ultimately, you you wouldn't think of it as constipation. The next thing you know, you obstruction. The next thing you know, you've got a perforation. You got peritonitis, and you die. And that's what the result was for an old person. You know, she actually wasn't that old. She was younger than I am. <laughs> uh, she she died from this thing, and so. I, I think you have to obviously be careful and know that opiates in an older person can be uh, not your friend. Back to this transfer issue. Um, I, I could see this actually happening in a variety of scenarios where the paperwork didn't get sent back. And it makes me realize, you know, I don't really follow what happens with that paperwork and I could see it, you know, getting kind of handled, you know, not all that carefully. And I don't actually think that a lot of the care facilities are linked to the same EMRs that our hospitals are linked to. I think increasingly a larger portion of hospitals are able to see the records, but I don't think that's necessarily true of these care facilities. You know, they didn't have the same meaningful use incentives that the hospitals did. 
So, um, you know, I can imagine a scenario, say a patient came in, was diagnosed with diverticulitis or, you know, something else that would be a relative contraindication to a colonoscopy. And maybe it wasn't communicated that they were supposed to have a colonoscopy the next day. And, you know, those records didn't make it back and they went and had their pre-scheduled colonoscopy the next day. Yet somehow that's going to, that's still on you as the emergency physician for not, you know, following through on that communication. You made that diagnosis that identified some relative contraindication to the procedure they had the next day. Um, and you know, didn't, didn't link those two and the patient died, you're still probably going to be hooked into that lawsuit or you could be. Yeah. You could blame it on the nurses and say, well, that's kind of the responsibility to package that stuff up and send it back with the patient captain of the ship. But I was going to say, ultimately it, it's your responsibility. You just delegated that responsibility and it, it, it didn't work out. Right. Do we talk about the sobbing plaintiff attorney and medical record, uh, uh, medical expert? Please. Yes, please. <laughs> the defendant physician claimed the behavior of these two people, the attorney for the plaintiff and uh, the medical expert for the plaintiff, uh, they tainted the, his trial because the plaintiff and the family members cried physically cried while the these people were giving their testimony this there was a delayed diagnosis of ovarian cancer in this case the expert was describing what the patient was likely to go through during their process of dying so uh, as this person describes this everybody in the family is crying the the expert is crying the attorney is crying and you think that prejudiced the jury at all <laughs> I I, I kind of think so. Yeah, wait a minute. That's part of a lawsuit, Rick. I mean, before we start sort of immediately jumping in on this thing, uh, remember that that they're going to be regular old people who sit on a jury and they get to see these family members. And this wouldn't be the first time someone has cried <laughs> during testimony in a medical malpractice case. Yeah, but how, I, about I, the, how about the attorney and the expert? They're you know what? Everybody, the judge is crying. Everybody's crying. The, the bailiff. I think they're all allowed to cry. I don't think there's a rule. I mean, maybe we can get our attorney here to, to tell us, but I, I don't think that that's necessarily a reason that the case is, has been decided inappropriately. Oh, it's theater. Of course not. Total of course theater. not. Yes, it's total theater. And, and the bottom line is that theater is a part of all of the all of the process. And, and uh, you know, I think this, this, this doctor should have lied to learn to cry better. <laughs> and uh, he could have had his own cry uh, fest uh, during his part of the case. I, I, I don't know what somebody's going to expect them to do. There will be crying in trials. Well, you know, the, uh, you can envision the closing argument in these in this case, you know, where the the plaintiff's attorney is sobbing in front of the jury as he sum, sums up the whole affair. The motion for a new trial was denied, as you might have anticipated, Greg. As you <laughs> yes, exactly. However, this is kind of interesting. The 
the award to the patient was substantially less than expected. So, you know, maybe that had some, they said, okay, let's give the, let's give it to the patient, but let's not give too much money. They died. 1.3 million is fine for dying. Yeah. 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 Um, Go ahead, Rachel. I was going to say, speaking of theater. So one of the most memorable stories, my law school mentor told me uh, back when he was a big highfalutin lawyer, you know, worked for one of these top 10 law firms in DC. They, you know, did training for the uh, trial lawyers and, you know, he never made the cut as a trial lawyer because he wasn't like built enough. And it was just the manly men that they put in front of the juries because it was, you or, know, the womenly uh, women. <laughs> yeah, for the right people, maybe. But, right. you know, they were really they were very much like profiling the people they wanted to put. So you had to be like, you know, tall, handsome, built. And they literally I kid you not. They, these were these like giant you know, trials, these multi-million billion dollar trials that these companies did where they had like teams of, you know, dozens and dozens of lawyers that were billing like ridiculous thousands of dollars per hour. Um, the trial lawyers would stuff their pants to make themselves look like they had a bigger package because that was more <laughs> appealing to the jurors. I'm not joking you. This was part of the like profile of the lawyers to stand in, you know, so that in front of the jury, they would look like more whatever, you know, authoritative. So the literally the lawyers for these giant firms were up there with socks in their pants or whatever they used to stuff their pants. Well, Greg wouldn't need to do that. Nope. No, 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 not at all. No, but this is not a joke. Like this is something you think you see on a movie, but this is real life. I mean, yes. this is, they're actually doing this. It's crazy. To well, me. they probably had uh, studies about uh, what jurors respond. Right. To, and they determined the size of your package was one of the things that made you a manly man. Well, and believable and made the jury, you know, trust you more or whatever. And so, yeah, it was absolutely just based on all these studies about <laughs> what do what do what sways the jurors. And apparently that's more, you know, meaningful than the facts. Um, it's really weird. So we're waiting for these, all of these questions that come in from these two people who are listening to this live. And what do I get? Doc accused of killing 14 patients. Verdict is in. Uh, I guess now, can I click this to see what the verdict was? Because that's the headline. <laughs> you know. Did he kill him or did he not kill him? Uh, with opiate overdoses at a Columbus, Ohio hospital ICU over a four-year period was found not guilty by a jury Wednesday. This was a, a person uh, expect, suspected of end-of-life uh, taking the matter into their own hands after a seven-week trial, for crying out loud, featuring more than 50 witnesses. They declared Dr. Husell, H-U-S-E-L, not guilty on 14 counts of murder and attempted murder. Okay, there, there you go. Well, I mean, that's seven weeks. My, my wife went to a trial that went seven weeks in Pasadena. It was about a, it was a retrial of a guy who was accused of shooting to death somebody else. It was a gangbanger kind of thing. And the retrial went seven weeks. And, of course, they convicted him. Yes, exactly. Look at all that time and money. Fortunately, she still got her partner share, even though she wasn't doing any particular much in the way of work during that time. Um, 
Is there anything else that we want to talk about in this sobbing? Uh, no. Okay. How about dealing with offensive or impaired doctors? Greg, I bet you've had a few impaired or offensive doctors during your few years of practice. Yep. It, let, let me just say to start out, when you are the, the head of the department, you're going to hear everything from everybody and their cousin and their wife and, and their friend and their neighbor about this doctor did this or that in the department. I think the first thing the chief of the department has to do is take a deep breath and, and, and sit back and relax and try and get the information um, as, as correctly as you can. But I, I will say this, that one of the toughest jobs of being the chief of a department is having to deal with personality interactions between patients, the docs, the families. It isn't simple. And I, I think, it, you know, as I look back over all those years I was head of a department, that was the toughest part, was because we don't all view it the same way. And what should be said and what isn't allowed to be said and all these things, it becomes a difficult situation for everyone involved. So anyone who th thinks being chief of the department is just getting awards at the end of the year, no. It's having to deal with all the families. Yeah, I think that this is tough. I was the chief for 25 years, and um, there are two things that you had uh, issues with. Doctors who may have crossed the line I remember one of our doctors was accused of doing um, two vigorous pre-employment physicals. Mm. And, um, you know, I didn't know because they were always done alone by the doctor in, in the room doing a physical. And these people, these women would be in gowns and um, what their breasts have to do with their ability to work or do a job is pre-employment physicals, I think, are pretty nutty in the first place. Yeah, unless you're you're um, have some specific reasons to do that. So um, I didn't even know that this doctor was, you know, touching anybody's breast, no less. Um, anyway, so that that happened, and this doctor basically, ultimately, was relieved of his duties because um, several women uh, complained about him. And it, frankly, he was let off early, uh, easily, because he could have gotten a lot, into a lot more trouble. And maybe he should have gotten into more trouble. Maybe um, maybe I should have been more aggressive with this. This is not the time when I did this that, you know, I think um, the idea of um, behaving appropriately in in front of women or with women was um, not nearly as as prominent as it as it or fair as it is now. I think so. I, I'm trying to excuse myself for my behavior in this case. Um, they also have this thing about this advice from this this column that was also in Medscape. You want to go through some of that, um, Rachel? Uh, sure. But do you guys want to talk about the case that the um, commenter put, the, the not 
the not guilty on this uh, physician who. Yeah, go ahead. So I, I looked it up while you guys were talking. Um, I actually hadn't heard of it before, but it's kind of it's all over the news right now. Have you have you guys read about it all? No, no. So it's the first I've heard of it. So it's interesting. It was a, an Ohio physician who I think I was just briefing briefly kind of ran through it quickly, but an ICU physician, it looks like who, uh, over the course of, I don't know, three or four years initially was accused of murder, 25 cases of murder for overdosing people on fentanyl and morphine with the intention of hastening their death, which is not legal in Ohio. And then eventually that count got dropped to like 14 deaths and all in all of those 14 deaths, they were all related to fentanyl and all the doses range from 500 micrograms to 2000 micrograms of fentanyl at a time that were given to these patients who then, you know, rapidly died. Um, all of them had terminal illnesses and he was acquitted of all of those charges based on the kind of determination that, you know, it was impossible to say that the, providing those medications actually hastened their death. You know, they were so close to, to dead anyway. Um, but dang, those are high doses. <laughs> <laughs> dang, those are high doses. Uh, you know, this is where one of those cases, like it just doesn't pass the sniff test here. But, you know, this is a, maybe artful lawyering on both both uh, sides of this uh, this case that the, the fact that it went seven weeks i mean somebody put a heck of a lot of effort into nailing this doctor and um it didn't happen but, I, but you know there's other things that maybe this doctor's contract will not be renewed if uh, they're a uh, independent contractor or something like that so well um, so to point out this was a criminal case so this was the murder case, this oh, the yeah. murder charges. Mm -hmm. So the the civil cases have not been brought yet. And you know, for criminal cases, the the standard of proof is much higher. Yes. Mm -hmm. Um so yet to be seen how the civil cases play out. You know, like OJ was not guilty in the criminal cases and then had the giant verdict in the civil cases. So Which same he's still happen. not paying because uh he lives in Florida, where, you, where, <laughs> where they, where if you uh, are sued, you still own uh, and you own a house. They can't take your house away from you. So you can just buy a multi-million-dollar house, park some cash in, you know, in that house, and they can't take your house from you. But that's Florida. Yeah, that's why OJ, I think, is there um, for sure. Well, anyway, it's just it's fascinating because. I don't think there are a ton of cases around like end of life. And this is something that could come up in the emergency department. This specific one wasn't, I want to reward the person who's listening and actually putting in a question, you know, by discussing it, but you know, we, we get in the scenario where we're giving meds at the end of life, you know, whether it's fentanyl, morphine, Ativan. And I think that, you know, it's always up for debate whether we're hastening death with that. And I think the argument is it doesn't really matter if we're hastening death if we're providing the comfort if that's our primary goal if we hasten death that's it doesn't really matter but yeah, it's this is as uh comfort measures and right. the comfort measures may have a side effect of 
hastening yeah. deaths. And the family's aware of that and everybody's into it. That, you know, that seems to be uh, a reasonable approach. It doesn't sound like, sounds like this is a kind of like his own decision to do this. And, you know, the, you've heard of these angel of death cases where nurses have, have given um, medications that have caused people's death. So, yeah. You know, I think I mentioned uh, before the case of the anesthesiologist in our, in our hospital who got criminally uh, charged for neglect. And the nurse who gave the Versed instead of the, um, um, gave the, the Vecuronium or instead of the Versed, basically she's up for, her sentencing is May 13th. And so uh, everybody's going to be watching uh, that. But you already read a lot of papers regarding uh, nurses saying, well, am I next? If I make a mistake, am I going to get criminally prosecuted? And obviously in this case, there's, you know, there's two sides of it. And um, people, I guess, think that her behavior was such that it was worthy of a criminal trial at least. But so... I don't know that you can uh, necessarily think that that's a big opportunity for nurses to make mistakes. I think it was and get, and get similarly prosecuted. Anyway, what about uh, this three C things that uh, C. Layman, who wrote this article in Medscape uh, back in November, she said that three three C's. All right, this is for me. So the article itself was based at a presentation at the 2021 MGMA conference by Deborah Ferris, who's the president of practice and the practice and liability consultants. Basically, the article talks about how just verbal harassment or bullying can lead to large dollar awards against organizations that knew about the behavior but didn't stop it. Um, and basically, offending positions need to know this. And there are a few tactics that they put forward for dealing with disruptive positions. So three C's that, that are suggested. First, confronting it. Um, starting with just an informal discussion, you know, about that behavior. When I think ideally at the time of that behavior, when you first see it, like, hey, you know, what you're doing, we, we really can't do that here. We got to find a different way to, you know, behave in that situation. Um, I think the, the closer you can do it to that behavior, the better and kind of the less awkward that confrontation is, um, correcting that behavior. Uh, so seeking a written apology. I think that's a good idea. I mean, once, obviously when this happens, so somebody is on the receiving end of this bullying or harassment or or uh, un inappropriate comp uh, comments. And so sending a formal apology acknowledges in writing that an error was made by this person. Of course, they're sending it um, because they're, everybody's afraid of a lawsuit here. Right. right. And on the same side, you know, the, the organization should put something in writing to document that they are addressing this behavior, which can come in the form of kind of a letter uh, of admonition to the person who's behaving badly. Um, and then kind of a third step, if that's not working is to engage with some kind of formal coaching or counseling for that person to, 
kind of more aggressively try to modify that behavior. If, if people are still resisting, you can do one final letter, basically warning them of the consequences followed by termination. They also have this idea about, um, uh, you mentioned doing it as soon as possible to the incident. Because, you know, if you did it, if you, if you, you say, Frank, you know, yesterday when you did this with this patient, it was probably not a, you know, it was not really uh, the way to do it and you offended them, et cetera. Obviously that all of this takes courage, but if you're in any kind of a responsible role as a, a leader of the department or something like that, you don't really have any choice because you are now acting on behalf of the hospital to act as their agent to try to um, resolve this problem. And uh, I, I told you about this big case where a anesthesia resident was bothering an emergency department resident and the department is alleged to have not uh, done anything about it until it was well down the road. And uh, so she sued the department, um, the, the doctor who was annoying her and or harassing her and uh, ultimately the resident had a the anesthesia resident had to go to a different hospital uh the uh, doctor ones who sued won some kind of an award and the, the department chairman also wind up leaving the hospital as well because basically it, it was perceived that they didn't do something that they were supposed to do to protect the hospital the patient I mean the the employee the and the two residents they they should have been kind of something should have been done and that was the whole allegation and it's just easier to sweep a lot of this stuff underneath the rug but you can you, you could wind up paying big in terms not only in terms of dollars but in terms of your position at the hospital. The other thing that they mentioned here is um, you have to be consistent. Uh, everybody has to be held to the same standards, whether you're a, uh, a chief of staff or any kind of physician or nurse or anybody else, and that other employees will make want to see that, in fact, this code of conduct is is maintained for everybody. Yeah. And, you know, to that end, the code of conduct should be in place uh, and shared, you know, from the beginning of employment during the interview process. This is something that, you know, from the employee's perspective has existed for all time. It's not kind of being created as the employee starts behaving badly. It's just kind of, um, it's been laid out from the beginning. You know, um, in that, in that regard, uh, having, uh, this idea of, of fairness in this code of conduct, you know, I wonder when a new doctor comes on staff, why we're not asked to sign off on a book that I that I've read the code of conduct. I've read what are the reportable diseases in in this state. All of these kinds of behavioral kinds of things that can get not only the doctor in trouble but the hospital in trouble as well. Because you know, what are the reportable cases to the state with regarding lapse of consciousness or something to that effect. And in California, there's a very specific law about uh, reporting lapses of consciousness. And if you don't do it and somebody hurts somebody, you didn't file state law. And that state law was, was 
also part of our um you know our our manual of things that you have to understand and agree to when you come on to the department i think that you know what if a, a physician comes in from another state they don't know anything about california's reportable diseases reportable conditions any of those kinds of things and yet i don't think any doctor has to kind of sign off and yes i've read all of the codes of conduct and here's my initials underneath each one rachel <laughs> did you have to have, ever have to do any of that I don't know. It sounds kind of familiar, actually. <laughs> I, familiar, I was, but I don't remember doing it. I was going to say, Rick, it was so long ago you did it in the state of California. I mean, I'm sure but you, I, I, I'm sure they had something for you to do. But uh, things, things really have changed. Uh, and uh, behavior in the departments, uh, what you can and can't get away with, uh, in, in talking to uh, other personnel at the hospital. I, I think that things have changed a light year since I started in the hospital, and it's probably a good thing. But, uh, but, but I honestly think this is getting better. Um, I, I think there was more outrageous physician behavior in, in, and comments and things like that in the past than there are now. I think it's better. Yeah, they used to have all these doctors acting up in the operating room because they were these prima donnas and, uh, you know, the nurse didn't, didn't hand the right instrument immediately or something to that effect. That's yeah. not tolerated anymore. And I think that that if I was the, the chief of staff of the or chief medical officer or something to that effect, I think that physicians should acknowledge the key policies that the hospital expects them to uh, uphold. Because what happens if you, you're you in a position of saying, well, they never told me I couldn't do that. You know, well, maybe, yep. maybe there's no proof that they told you that you shouldn't do this or that. This is our, uh, our standards of, of behavior, or this is what's going to happen if you come in and you're expected to be intoxicated. This is what we're going to do. Um, I think that those things are perfectly reasonable. You may be, you know, when you sign up for a hospital and you get this, all of the stuff that you're supposed to acknowledge, I don't think most people have any recollection of signing any of this stuff as, as, rep, as reflected by Rachel's lack of any awareness that she's agreed to any of those things. Right. I mean, we, exactly. we definitely have some of that. I remember like we have a dress code, you know, we can't have, at least when oh, I signed, really? we couldn't have uh, like exposed tattoos, we couldn't dye our hair. Some of that they've relaxed, but we had to still wear pantyhose when I signed my first contract at me or like signed. Uh, it wasn't a contract, but when I first took my job at Mayo. Wow. Do they still have a, a dress code? They have a dress code, but it's relaxed a little bit. Actually, when they first got rid of the pantyhose requirement, uh, there was like pantyhose in the trees in Rochester <laughs> because people were so excited. It was only a few years ago, but it was people felt so liberated. It was pretty funny. Well, don't they keep you warm? Yeah, I, I still mean, like you them. need them in Rochester. Yeah, I, I know. I think. Yeah, but it was the you know, it was symbolic. Yeah, I think that uh, there's all of these studies about what, what patients think you ought to look like. Um, and they, they're easy to do because they just have pictures of this is a, you know, a, a doctor wearing scrub. This is a, a woman physician wearing a lot of jewelry. This is a white coat, no white coat. 
and 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 they show pictures of these people to people on internet surveys, which e again very easy uh, thing to do. And there are some trends in terms of what the expectations of people are. I mean, they don't necessarily do them for the emergency department specifically, but you know, there there is a trend, at least in some, that you know they like white coats. Uh, I think particularly the older patients are expecting physicians to look like, you know, what their expectation of a physician to look like is. Uh, although I'm sure you know they view scrubs as acceptable, they may prefer a white coat. But I think you want every advantage you can. And I think one of the advantages that you can in terms of establishing your uh, credibility, particularly for women, so they're not, you know, confused with the nurses or something like that. I think a white coat with your name on it that says, you know, Mayo uh, Clinic Emergency Bar underneath would, would go a long way in terms of, plus, Rachel, you look like you're 15. I mean, come on, you know? Yeah, yeah. So I, I could see why you should strive to kind of get everything in your advantage when you can and and that you will get you know i i know a physician you know the same physician he's got a he's got a a tattoo from his wrist to his shoulder yeah but it stops at his wrist so patients you know can't see when he's wearing a long shirt or anything like that right um, what he's chosen to do yep should we move on do we have anything further to say about this well, there are a few more points in here. Again, I think another point that is worth saying is if you're, you know, get to the point where you're going to fire somebody, get an attorney first to make sure you've like you've checked off all the boxes because it is not uncommon if you fire a physician that they're going to hire an attorney and, you know, kind of uh, fight that decision or, you know, it turn into a wrongful termination lawsuit, especially if you haven't done it in the right way or given them kind of due course. And so, uh, if you are going to make a life-changing decision for somebody, invest, you know, however much it costs to hire a lawyer and do it the right way. I know that we kind of sound like a broken record here, but these are situations where lawyers, you know, are are going to save you a lot of headache and hassle down the road. Well, yeah, I think it's a big deal to terminate a doctor because um, when that doctor goes to get their next job, uh, you don't expect a nice letter of recommend. The, the letter of recommendation will be, Yes, the doctor was on the medical staff here between this year and that year. <laughs> you know, that's, that's <laughs> yeah. Um, no, it's a huge, it's a huge, huge deal. And, you know, likely that doctor's not a terrible person. They just, you know, didn't hold up their end of the bargain one too many times. And it's, it's not a fun thing. And so you've got to dot your I's and cross your T's. And you probably did not get the training on how to do that in medical school. So, you know, pay $10,000, $20,000 for a lawyer to do it for you. Plus, the, you know, the hospital probably has its own uh, HR department. They know how to do this stuff. They have the hospital has its own uh, lawyers. And I, th I think if you're an employed doctor by a hospital, uh, then you have the hospital's resources behind you. If you're an independent contractor or something like that, that's, a, that's kind of a different story. Um, Want to move on? Sure. Uh, yeah, let me let me do this thing about impaired doctors. You know, the doctor who's getting a little too old to be practicing and is getting for, more forgetful than, uh, than usual or something to that effect, or even going to a doctor who is acting as if they're really, de they're, they're just acting depressed. They have no, their affect is flat. They don't seem to have any joy in their work. I had an interview with um, 
a doctor who you know, Greg, um, Louise Andrew. You yes. Know, yeah. Of course. Louise <clears throat> is a, a MDJD who um, had a, a lawsuit against her, which helped precipitate the fact that she's 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 about our age or less or, or somewhat less, but she was very influential in in the leadership positions in ASEP. But she ultimately went into um, supporting doctors who've been sued through this process, uh, just like uh, Gita Pensa, who, yes. the, who is also doing the same kind of thing because she yep. said, had such a horrible experience being sued that she spends a lot of her time now, you know, helping doctors uh, get, get through this process. Well, anyway, we, we were talking about, and it's going to be on MRAP in about four months, is about physician depression and physician suicide. And one of the things that comes out of this, especially if you're a uh, leader of a department, is you really need to approach physicians who are acting like they're in the dumps and and say um, something to the fact that you know you really seem depressed. Um, can I? Can we? You want to talk about it? You know? Can I get you any help? That's the job of the department director to to do that, and um, you may be saving somebody's life in the process of doing that. Um, they look at the physicians who commit suicide. Very, very few of them are under any kind of medication that would uh, be helpful. So they've not gotten any help. Um, and so the idea is if you see something, what's the worst thing that they can say? They can say, mind your own business, or, uh, or they can say, no, I'm fine. But if they say, mind your own business, you, you as the director, you have to say, well, well, if, if you're not depressed, then get with the program and start smiling and start acting like you care. Yeah. Because it's part of the job, whether you like it or not. But if you're, you know, if there's a reason that you're down in the dumps, you know, there's exogenous depression where people are depressed because they're going through an, a divorce. They're going through a, you know, a big IRS audit. They're, they, they are, they're getting sued. They have all, you know, the kids are having problems at school, whatever it is, you know, those kinds of things. If they're, if they, if you're bringing it into work, um, it's the director's responsibility to kind of see if that behavior can be fixed. Um, there's also this idea of being, um, Fit for duty. You know, we did this thing, Greg, a while ago where there, the medical staff was having mandatory neuropsychiatric evaluations for doctors over a certain age if they, when they're renewing their credentials. And um, people, that got to be a really kind of sticky wicket. And uh, do you know uh, at your hospital, Rachel, or any hospital where there are physicians over a certain age are having to? required to go through any kind of uh, neuropsychiatric evaluations? I'm not aware of any, actually, but it makes some sense. Well, it, 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 it does, but what these papers basically said is you can't do it by age alone. Yeah. You have to have some other parameters to get somebody to go through that process. Um, and then again, it has to be done by a third party, et cetera. All of these things, you know, the rules about age, age um, discrimination come into play. You better know what you're doing is, is I guess, the, the, the gist of this here. I'm um, thinking about the conversation right now about Diane Feinstein 
which is in the news a lot, yes, right? Mm-hmm, right. It's really relevant and super sticky. And I think there's there are a lot of people that have concerns about her mental capacity and ability to do her job. And, you know, it's still very much uh, people, a very sensitive topic. Yeah, it is. And um, there was a jug, judge on the Supreme Court. Uh, I don't recall which one it was. Yeah. Who, who was falling asleep, who was incontinent of urine uh, in there. And um, just basically the idea that you have a lifetime position and it's your call when you want to stop. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> there's a lot of these judges who have probably should not be deciding these really major cases when they're as old as they are. Yeah. What do you think? Should judges have a lifetime term on the Supreme Court? Oh, yeah. It, oh, you know, I, that's, that's, you got to be careful. A... You got to be careful here, Rick, because no, it's get, a system a, which is worked. Term. That's what? It. You get a 10-year term. <laughs> we'll give you 10 years. We'll give you, we'll give you 15 years, but then you're out. Yeah. Anyway, what about the aging doctor who won't retire? Um, basically gets a little uh, uppity oh, about yeah. it. I guess I ju- was jumping ahead and I was looking at that section in reference to Diane Feinstein. Now, let me just tell you that uh, in most hospitals, the docs who are getting to that stage, the other docs cluster around, talk to them, do various things, take over other cases um, I haven't seen it as great a problem as, uh, as some of my colleagues have. Uh, I think that I, I think that most of our docs get some input from other members of the department when they need it. And I, I, I really think that it's, it's not as big a problem as it may have been in the past. Well, that sounds like a good good way to do it, as long as that you know um, the doctors, you know, accepting of the uh, advice. If they're not accepting of the advice, you kind of got go down this path, which uh, does have neuropsychiatric evaluations in it, and your employment agreement may have said that that would be uh, a requirement for you to submit to that under certain circumstances. Um, so there are all kinds of things that you need to read before you, you start your job. Yes. You know, I think, Greg, that also when we started in emergency medicine, which was in the 70s, a lot of these doctors now are, are in their 70s and are, and are generally past their retirement age. Um, <laughs> if And so th- this thing may be coming up more than, than not because, you know, there there are doctors who are, clearly older than us who are still practicing and whether or not that's a good idea or not is another matter because I would think that if they make a mistake, that it's more likely they will be sued. And, you know, even, even Biden is, you know, being accused of um, not being able to pass a, a, a neuropsychiatric test. I know I, I listen, we, We've we've never had a time when there wasn't somebody in a position of authority who uh, who that question hasn't come up. 
is their age, their years, their this, their that. I I think in general, Rick, we handle it pretty well. Um, I, you know, I've been involved in that at my own hospital uh, with with uh, well two physicians over the years. And you know what? I I think we did the best we could for those physicians and their patients. I mean, we did have to talk to them uh, and and about their plans into the future as to what they were going to do, like tomorrow and and, and on Friday, that kind of thing. Yeah, is that uh, what is pack pack that pack your box and yes and, it, and leave the red stapler behind. Yeah, but but you know you you kind of wonder where you put that hammer. Um, where where do you say that uh, somebody you know you got to retire now? Well, <laughs> some of those people are pretty good, and and you got to be careful. But you also I, have to remember that those people are probably been covered for to some degree uh, before that conversation occurs. Yes, I think that's actually a really interesting topic. I haven't really spent much time thinking about it, but I think it's going to be, as you point out, Rick, kind of a growing issue in emergency medicine in particular, because we're just maturing as a specialty. So we're kind of seeing our first generation of people reach the age where maybe this is becoming problematic. Um, so, and, and then just in general, you know, 30, 40 years ago, people really weren't wanting to work into their seventies because, right. you know, life expectancies were different retirement age was different. And now we're really pushing that for a lot of reasons. Um, you know, COVID physicians have put off, they've kind of extended their retirement age. Telemedicine has allowed people to re extend their retirement age. You know, a lot of people not in emergency medicine, yes, but also other specialties have started being able to work from home. So I think we're going to see physicians working longer into their seventies for a number of different reasons. And I don't know that we've really addressed this issue in the systematic way that we probably need to. And maybe we haven't seen it as, you know, a huge issue yet, but even, you know, a few dozen physicians out there working, you know, being incompetent, working at age 75 is, it's a lot of patients with incompetent physicians. Working at what age? Oh my God. Did you hear what she said? with That one. You know, I'm just oh, saying, you know, but like, no, I agree. I would, yeah. I, I do agree with you. Um, it, it is going to come up and you really be, need to be careful about it. And Greg's way, I think is really the, the way to, for colleagues to, to do this, but you hope that uh, they get the message, but, but how do you even recognize those colleagues? That's presuming that you're working closely with them enough to recognize it. And right. I don't think that's really the case anymore. You know, you're not seeing their patients. It's, it's not the same work environment. I have no idea what my colleagues are doing. Really? I mean, you have more than one, one physician on at a time, don't you? Yes. I'm, you know, a lot of the time, but you know, you're never in a room with them. We don't have curtains. Yeah. Okay. Maybe you see their bounce backs, but you know, and when, when you get into a telemedicine environment, there's no, you know, there's no overlap. So there are definitely environments where you can have a physician who's working, you know, pretty much in a silo. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think you're right. Yeah. You know, let's uh, uh, let's stop here. We have a long thing we want to do next time about it's another doctor who was sued um, because they 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 sued because they were believed to be wrongfully terminated. And 
we'll go over that case um, next time. It's really a, an interesting uh, case. It, it's really, uh, in some ways, it's kind of like uh, unbelievable, but uh, we'll go through it and we'll get into the thing about at will, uh, employees being hired at will. And what does that, that mean? Because I think a lot of you are hired at will, frankly, and 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 that was one of the issues that ASAP is dealing with is, um, you know, having some recourse other than being said, well, we're done. Thank you very much. I wanted to, Greg, did you have a wine for this month? Uh, no, didn't you have yes, a? Yes, well, I just happened to have one here. Uh, <laughs> this was uh, sent to me uh I'm blocking the guy's name who sent it. But in any case, this is from the Wall Street Journal of all places, uh, something that I read regularly or the wine column here. Right. This is, this is about what they call, um, uh, they're called Petit Chablis. Petit Chablis. And they point out that the reference books, when they talk about Petit Chablis, it says lighter with fewer flavors than Chablis, but it's cheaper. Uh, but th does that sound like a, wine you'd want to drink no well, not according to the wall street journal but yes. this paper this this article says you know there's some of these that are really terrific and uh not all should be put into the same uh same category here and they wanted to point out one in particular fresh and wonderfully well-balanced 2020 domain vincent damp petit Chirac, petit Chirac, 20 bucks as well made as it's well priced, as well made as it's well priced. So there you go. Uh, for those of you who are um, into the wines, Petit Chablis, particularly the 2020 Domaine Vincent Damp Petit Chablis, 20 bucks. Obviously, it has to be at Costco. And if it isn't, I'm not interested. Thank you. Yes. Me. Any further uh, matters to come before the uh, the jury? Nope. Rachel, good. anything going on? Nope, we're good. Okay. See you guys. We'll talk with you next month. Uh, WRBucata at gmail.com. WRBucata at gmail.com. Uh, send us a note. Tell us uh, what you think, what, what are the topics we had to cover, and uh, look forward to hearing from you. Um, bye for now. Signing off. Bye, Greg. Bye, Rachel. Bye.